when I say congruency, I'm not talking just about my own energy. I'm talking about my intention and the value of knowing that people want to be seen and valued and cared for and that leadership is a relationship. The value of knowing that is, I think, the ticket to producing exceptional results. Hi, I'm Alex Pascal, CEO of Coaching.com, and this is Coaches on Zoom Drinking Coffee. My guest today is renowned for advising leadership teams on how to foster a mindset of inclusion and create cultures of equity. She is the CEO of Simmons University Institute for Inclusive Leadership and the Simmons University Deloitte Ellen Gabriel Chair for Women and Leadership. Most recently, she has co-authored a new book, Arrive and Thrive, Seven Impactful Practices for Women Navigating Leadership. Please welcome Susan Brady. Hi, Susan. Hi, Alex. It's so good to have you. Thank you for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. I am really happy to be with you. Psyched for our conversation. Yes, same here. So we start all of our episodes by asking our guest what we are drinking today. So Susan, what are we drinking? Well, Alex, I am having some new tea that I tried. It's peach Bellini. Obviously, it's not really Bellini. They're adding all these fancy names to teas now. It's like nail polish. It's like whoever gets to name teas and name nail polish. That's what I want to come back as <laughs> in my next life. But it's delicious. How about you? What are you drinking? <laughs> Mine is just like organic Sencha green tea. It doesn't have, I think in your next life, you don't want to come back and work for this company. Great tea, but the names are just green matcha. So We can do better. <laughs> yeah, you're right about the names of teas. Like people are getting very excited with those. Yeah, peach Bellini. I was like, well, we have had alcohol to be the drink of choice, but I wasn't aware we were doing that today. That was the first thing I thought about. I was like, it's a little early. <laughs> it's a little early. Cool. Well, it's so it's so great to have you here. So many things I want to talk to you about, but we usually like to start at the beginning. So do you remember the first time you heard about this thing called coaching? Oh, yeah. So here's the thing, Alex. My graduate degree at 20-whatever, one years old, was in applied behavioral sciences and educational leadership. And as part of the educational leadership curriculum, we all coached and had coaches. And so I was little when I heard about it. But I remember thinking, wow, I I didn't know this was a profession. I remember thinking, I, I didn't even know leadership development was a thing in graduate school because it was really focused around higher education administration at the time. And so I guess in my early 20s is the answer. Wow, that's pretty early on. And, you know, it's just, uh, it's so interesting. You say like, you didn't know leadership development was a thing. I experienced the same thing. It's one of those things that used to be kind of part of training in organizations and it was almost like compulsory. And it wasn't until HR started becoming more strategic than we really, I think we're still going through this wave of organizations recognizing the strategic importance of people, which now it almost sounds like ridiculous to say, but if you trace back and you look at the history of people development, it is not until the last 
couple decades and you can bring it even closer to now that it really becomes a strategic imperative. Isn't that interesting? Totally. You know, I mean, I think there was spot coaching and I think there's still confusion about the field of coaching, what the value is and when to deploy coaching. But by and large, what a helpful construct, the thought that I can become even better with someone whose agenda is simply to help me do that, right? Which is the way I think about coaching. I love that frame because it's so difficult to find people that will listen for a prolonged amount of time, right? I mean, the the art of listening, it's truly an art and it's something that is not very prevalent in our relationships with people in, in general. And, you know, listening is not the easiest thing in the world and a good coach is a really good listener that can also reframe things and help people put them into action so it's really a beautiful skill set and one that is much needed so susan what is the shadow side that female leaders experience so i think it's true for all humans and i think women are held to a different standard not just because of the double bind but because of other untalked about biases about how women are expected to show up Most of the time when I work with leaders who are effective to a point, what I find is they have been all the drive and the urgency to make happen what they sign up to make happen so that they continue to have a high say-do ratio. That energy, that intensity is not motivating to other people. In fact, it might be actually full on turning people off or away. And yet it to a person, every time I talk to a leader who has this intensity, they come to work every day to create great results. They wake up to provide value. They want their members of their team to thrive. So it's not intentional. So there's a gap between intention and impact. And I think that gap is broader or harder for women because we excuse the behavior that doesn't feel great for men more easily. Both men and women, I think, excuse men's behavior that may be a little bit tricky far easier than we do women. Can you unpack those behaviors? I can provide an example. Yeah, I mean controlling, interrupting, perfecting, speaking with intensity, right? Like some of the impact of, hey, can you do it this way? Might be perceived from you as, oh gosh, great, Alex, thank you. And what's read into my version of, hey, can you do it this way? Is that I think I know better, right? So I think oftentimes, I think women are ascribed different motivators when offering some of the same insights. And I think some of it is stylistic. And so the thing that I want to do first, and this has become so much of my life's work, and I'm so excited to reach people who didn't wake up woman because we all need it, is how am I showing up today? Am I leading from my best self? Is my energy congruent? Am I grounded inside myself so that the gap between my intention create great value, be likable, inspire and motivate others, right? Equals my impact. And it's that gap. I think that's the gap of the rationale for the entire industry of coaching, to be honest, is the gap between our intention and our impact. Because most of us 
have a bigger gap than we think. And then you layer in social constructs like the double bind and like gendered biases that sometimes are not even talked about, even misogyny. And that gap between intention and impact becomes really, really tricky. Yeah. And, you know, I I connect that with what you were saying earlier around self-awareness and why you love assessments. There's so much in the world that we operate under, every one of us, every day, right? And there's only so much that is part of our awareness. And I think that that assessment work, and I know that uh, self-awareness is an area of interest for you. Being aware of either the shadow side or even just not even thinking about the shadow side, being aware of that intention and impact and the gap there is so powerful, right? And I think that's where coaching can come in. And some people, I think as someone that is white and male, I have a very different experience when I raise my voice a little bit, you know, I'm perceived differently than a woman is. And I think there's a lot of conversations around equality and inclusivity and the experience of women in the workforce. But there seems to be very ingrained that we think in certain ways, right? And I think I like to look at history and like, if you look thousands of years ago, you know, humans had like female deities. And I think there's still some cultures today that have them. But in general, like it was like at a certain point of human development, there is a shift and the shift from horticultural societies, like there's a lot of different dynamics, right? But at some point, we start shifting to this male-oriented schema. And I think today we live in societies that are further and further more refined and pay attention to people's rights and liberties. And, you know, we are, have sensitized a lot of the ways in which we think about humans and our own humanity, but we still struggle, I think, a lot of us as males to understand what the experience for a female is and how do you accomplish success in a world where success may not be perceived as success, right? <laughs> for Because the way a, a successful female executive comes across on face value may sound great, but the way people perceive that female leader may be different than they would perceive a male leader doing the same thing. And I think we need to close that gap around our intent when we talk about what we expect from leaders and the actual impact that we expect to see from those leaders and how that shifts depending on who's doing the leading, right? It's it's just such a nuanced topic. We could go in a hundred different directions. It's interesting. I feel like I oftentimes want to go back to the value of self-understanding and self-awareness because what I see right now is that everyone who's faking it is being found out. So like if I feign, like I care about you because you work for me, this might be even, I think it's a reality of the pandemic. That what I see happening is that there's an intolerance for inauthenticity. And authenticity doesn't mean I get to like tell you everything about my life. It means that I'm going to, if I'm checking in with you because I'm saying I care, I genuinely care. I'm not checking the box on, oh, Alex is a human being, not just a human resource. So I have to actually check in with Alex as a human being. It is that when I say congruency, I'm not talking just about my own energy. I'm talking about my intention and the value of knowing that people want to be seen and valued and cared for and that leadership is a relationship. The value of knowing that 
is, I think, the ticket to producing exceptional results. The challenge is that some people are naturally more inclined to have those skills and or feel comfortable or have the time or feel less stressed to do it. So, I mean, in the scheme of being effective, there's lots of reasons why I think people get coached or people seek coaching. And my latest claim, especially for women, my call to action for myself too, is like, do not leave yourself behind. You know, while you're pleasing everybody around you and trying to perform, perform, make sure that you bring you with you, you know? So we could dance all around all of this from a gendered perspective to what we think and feel drives what we say and do to intention, the gap between intention and impact to the practices and arrive and thrive. Where do you want to go? Like we could talk about so much. So many things to unpack. And before we tag along with one of those pathways that you just set forth, I'm curious, you mentioned that the pandemic really changed the dynamic where people really care about authenticity more. What was it about the pandemic that made that shift happen? I think a few things. I think this, right, that our day-to-day includes connecting with people on screen I probably am a little closer to you visually than I would be in person, you know, if we sat across a whole table, right? Like, so there is something vulnerable about being seen and connecting. And then of course, I mean, you have a backdrop, I have some staged, you know, I have my book signed, but like, you're seeing a little bit of more about me by just seeing my background. So some of it was the the new closeness that came with online to online. And a lot of it came with the fact that I think humans, we traveled a scary journey altogether. And it didn't matter what your title was or how you identify. It did impact probably for sure, depending upon your job, right? So my friends who are healthcare workers had a very different experience than I did being a knowledge worker, right? Of the pandemic. And I would say it created vulnerability. It created a desire for connectivity. It created isolation. It created a deep fear in a lot of people. And so I think the pandemic woke up us all to the fact that we're human beings, first and foremost. And the way we were relating to each other prior, primarily, I mean, we talk to the people we like, but like, you know, we come to work to work with the human resources in the jobs to get the job done. And oftentimes could take for granted the human being that is also the human resource. And I think the pandemic stopped us all on our tracks. And I think that some of the real connectivity that came from that has opened up an aperture for desire to be seen in ways that I'm not sure I saw prior at work, right? Thank you for breaking that down for us. So let's talk about Arrive and Thrive. How did you arrive to that book. <laughs> what was the journey like to say, that's the book I want to write and this is the time to write it? Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. And I'm so excited. So I partnered, I have the Deloitte Ellen Gabriel chair for women in leadership at the Boston-based university, Simmons University. And I'm not, a, I'm not a career academic. I'm a career consultant coach and business leader and now author speaker, but I don't see myself as an academic. And so when I took a job as an administrator to drive and stand up an institute and I was awarded a chair, I was like an endowed chair. What do I do for an endowed chair? How do I prove myself worthy? And I was told that you just need a project. 
the project that I took on literally came out of a discussion with two very senior women at Deloitte and the former president of the the Simmons University, Helen Drynan, and myself over lunch. And it was totally organic, Alex. It's bizarre how this came to be. I came in with the thought, well, I could write another book. I mean, that's something that I, I know how to do, but it wasn't clear to me what book I would write and who with. And by the end of the lunch, I had a really good idea. And it it's because all four of us, I would say by all accounts, had reached some level of arrival into a high position of leadership. And what we ended up talking about is that it's lonely. It's hard to thrive. Onus is on us to have positive impact. And how are we supporting women once we arrive into positions of leadership? So my work to date had been, got to get there, you know, and it still is like, let's accelerate our advancement and how can we show up and thrive? And so, you know, the chairman of Deloitte US, Janet Foudy, and the new president for Simmons University, who is a scholar and academic, Lynn Perry Wooten, and I sat down and talked about essentially everything we'd learned about leadership over the past 85 collective years of our leading lives and unearthed the seven practices. And really they are framed for women because of what we were talking about earlier, because there's some unique barriers and obstacles still for the advancement of women in almost every profession. And I mean, advancement to the most senior leadership ranks. So that's how it came about. It felt like the spirit of Ellen Gabriel was with us. She started Deloitte's first women's network in the United States and lost her battle after several, as I understand, to breast cancer. And she Deloitte turned to Simmons years ago with Ellen's leadership to create a program at Deloitte for women leaders. And when she died, all the participants in the program got together and created an endowed chair in her honor. Like what a crazy, cool, loving thing to do, right? So I did feel like I need to do something that measures up to this woman's courage and fight and legacy. So Arrive and Thrive was born and it's like, wow, taken off. It's kind of (laughs) cool. That's an amazing background story for your book. And so how is this book different than your previous books? What's the different focus? So I feel like this is one part of the answer, but I think it's for me the most exciting answer, which is I knew what was wrong before. Like my work as a leader and in leadership development and as a coach and women's leadership in particular was all these hidden hurdles became evergreens. And I saw the hurdles and I thought, gosh, you know, these are coming up and coming up, but we know the way around these, right? And then the inner critic, people ask me all the time, like, do men have inner critics? Like, yes. My joke is that women really just want to talk about theirs more. So (laughs) that came up because of these very problematic narratives in our own mind that make us smaller and not good enough, right? And depending upon the narratives we grew up with, you know, it starts there, but gosh, you know, we're told in every turn out in the world that we're not good enough. And that all was sort of my work today. How do we arrive back to a place of compassionate center for ourselves and for others so that we can have thriving relationships? The thing that is new, Alex, that I got really clear about since I came over to Simmons was we need to make destination best, like something you want to Velcro to. I want every human to want to be intrinsically motivated to live their lives from their best self. 
And so what Arrive and Thrive offers in the first practice, which is investing in your best self, is deeply understanding who that is. So we define it as our strengths and talents, when those come together with where we're called to add value to others, and where that comes together with where we feel joy and vitality, and that's your best self zone. Are you clear about you when you're in your best self zone? And by the way, when you're in your best self zone, it doesn't mean other people are afraid of you or overtaken by you or like it includes others too, right? It includes the fact that I can be centered and grounded and feel good enough. That's me in my best self zone, right? I just, I think the contribution of the first practice in Arrive and Thrive is coming back to self so that we, you know, we have less stress and better connection in relationships, less conflict, or we move through it more skillfully, less regret. And so clarifying best self so that our return to best self can be swift was, I think, the greatest, one of my most excited contributions in Arrive and Thrive. Thank you. How we see ourselves is so important. So often, like I find it both, you know, as an executive and also as a coach. So I have those two sides, right? I've done a lot of coaching as a coach and I do not as much anymore, unfortunately, because I'm busy with coaching.com, but both as an executive and then as a coach, I've seen that a lot of the frames, the frame that people use to look at situations is is so contextual and dependent on how they see themselves. And it's just so powerful. And in some instances where, you know, someone says something to you and you're like, well, I related to how they might perceive that you're perceiving them. And I really can remember a couple instances where I told whether it was someone I work with or whether it was a client. It's like, well, that's how you see yourself. And I remember that being an actually really powerful thing to say and a very powerful thing to receive in the right context because there's intentionality, which is something we've been talking about, is when you say something to someone and you have a certain intention in a certain frame, it may be received very differently by someone whose self-image differs from the way you think about their self-image, right? So it's such a humanizing thing to come together and to realize, two people realize that there maybe is a different frame on how the other person's seeing themselves. And it is a very kind of purifying thing to, to come together and say, wow, like you don't see yourself the way I see you. Why is that, you know? <laughs> I have a great example <laughs> At the risk of offering a story that is vulnerable, I was the most senior executive a meeting and one of our partners from Hong Kong flew in and I had never met her. And I told you earlier, I stand fairly tall in stature and my nature is quite effusive. Like I'm a gregarious kind of, I think, warm enthusiast. You're a hugger. I'm a hugger, Alex. Okay. (laughs) So I greeted her with all of the intention of, I want you to feel welcome and special and warm and invited in and part of the U.S.-based family here. And she (laughs) was, oh God, it was so good. The way she gave me the feedback was so helpful. This is several years ago now, but it was probably one of the standout coaching moments of my life. She said to me, you know, your energy is big. 
And I was like, yeah, I know that. She said, it can be overwhelming. That's all she said. And I was like, whoa, okay, right? So I had a perception of self of, I was giving myself in this instance, a lot of credit for being warm and inviting. And my intention was to engage, but it never occurred to me that other people could perceive me as overwhelming. And add that to positions of leadership where I have to drive results. And I think I'm like, who doesn't want to be on board? Let's go, let's go, let's go. And my intensity, I knew, was not received with my experience of my own intent of my intensity. So I use myself with my coaching a lot. I mean, I do majority listening and leave it, I hope, as a reflective, conscious-making discussion with whoever I'm working with. And I love it when people in this field use themselves as agents of awareness. I'm a fellow traveler. No, thank you for sharing that. I know it's not always the easiest thing to get a little bit vulnerable. I love the theme that we're following here around connecting intent with impact. And one of the things that I notice about your work and the way you frame your work is that while you focused a lot on the experience of women, you ultimately get to the point where you're thinking about inclusivity and you want to bring men into that frame and apply a lot of the lessons and the learning from your life's work to apply both to men and women. So when you think specifically about arrive and thrive, what's the frame there for men and and beyond, well, if not men, really for people, right? Like how do you, when you think about that, the impact of that work, how does it apply across the board? Does that resonate? Because I can see you're very intentional to make inclusivity about both men and, and women, although your work's focused on females. Yeah, I really appreciate you raising this. You know, let's talk about men. Let's talk about men. Let's talk about men. It's like my favorite topic. And <laughs> I love men. So, so here's the deal. <laughs> I think that very, very well-intended leaders in the diversity and inclusion and leadership space have made it almost impossible for men to step in, in safety, to help right the wrong that these very offices and roles have been constructed to change. Because Mm -hmm. before you say boo, you might feel blamed and shamed. You might feel like you're not going to do it right. You might feel like there's no margin for error. And guess what? You're not always wrong. So what do we do about that? So I've been thinking a lot like the, the very people we need to have come in to create change specific to equity, specific to we look around our leadership tables, not just our boards, but our executive leadership tables. We look at every layer of leadership and we see true inclusion and we see true first diversity representation. Like there are different looking people. There are different preferences of how to communicate. There's diversity across multiple dimensions. I love that you're talking about the dimensions too, because oftentimes we just fall flat on like how people look, but people might look different and think the same. They might think the same and look different. I mean, it's, I like how you're adding these nuanced element of people are different and we need to look at a variety of characteristics, right? The thing that I know about all of this, I'm not going to engage anyone in a conversation about how they can lead in a world 
full of multiple dimensions of diversity if they feel like they will be punished. Okay. So the whole narrative about how to include men on the topic of gender equity, I think needs to change. And it's not one of allyship. I actually think even the words of allyship, which we're still using in inclusive leadership genres, are again, well-intended. And in, in some cases, it others the men in this case, right? So what's allyship? Can you break that down for me and, and our audience? When you talk about allyship, what, what are you talking about? How is it used in inclusive frameworks? Yeah, the intention of allyship is if you're different, if you're in, in relationship with someone who isn't like you and you see that they are treated differently in a suboptimal way, that you are going to make pathways to help that be brought to the attention so that they have the same rights and privileges as other people, right? So if I'm an ally to you, more likely you'd be an ally to me. You're noticing if I'm being mansplained in a meeting, talked over, you might notice that when you and your colleagues are talking about great talent, you might hear people referring to things about me and my life that they don't do to those who are men, right? Like you're going to start to notice. So in my opinion, allying, it's a verb. To be an effective ally is to upstand. It's to say, hey, I don't know what it's like to be you and I see you and I'm rooting for you. What's in the way? How can I show up in a way where you can thrive and achieve your full potential? That's the spirit of allying. And, you know, there's male ally programs. We offer something at the Institute around engaging. We don't do work with organizations to help inspire and empower their women without addressing the context in which they lead, which is all the other humans, right? And a systemic approach, which is always appreciated. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have to tell you, Alex, you know, I traveled a lot before the pandemic and I would go and do keynotes on my last book and join like all women's meetings. And they would have 15 minutes or 20 minutes with me. And the question they wanted to talk about was men. Like, how do we include the men? And I thought, well, gee whiz, imagine if all the men got together and were, and were worried. Like, how do we include the women, you know? And so there's something fundamentally confusing to me about how all of this was, was taking shape. And this summer, I actually had the opportunity to visit with Gloria Steinem at her home in New York and talk about Arrive and Thrive. And she's still doing these talking circles, which she learned how to do from Gandhi as they visited community to community in India in the 60s. And she brings together, or her team now brings together three or four or five leaders to sit down and, and have a generative conversation. And what a amazing opportunity and gift and to talk with Gloria Steinem. And I said to her, what am I going to do about the men? I got asked that all the time. And she said, we have to bring them in. And what I believe to be true is how men will be brought in to the conversation about advancing women around equity for all is that they don't feel like they're wrong at the outset. And I, I think because our language is such and our norms are such, and because we're all learning, we've gone maybe too far to a world where it's just not safe to get the very people we need in on these conversations. And so my reframe is one of leadership as opposed to equity and belonging. 
this is just, we're just talking about leadership. We're talking about good leadership in 2023, good leadership. And it is to understand and seek to be a learner on the journey about all these dimensions of diversity. You cannot lead effectively if you don't approach your organizational environment with a deep amount of humility and curiosity for what you can't possibly understand about dimensions of diversity. So interesting. And again, with that, along with that topic around intent, um, that often sometimes is not connected with the outcomes, right? I mean, what you're talking about, and look, women are more collaborative than men. And part of why I think a lot of us get excited about women have more stakes at the table is that when you look at the world today and some of the wicked problems that we have ahead, being collaborative can probably do a lot of good for us in these hyper-connected, fast-paced world. I mean, the male energy, and we can talk about like the energy, right? What, what like the female and the male energies represent. I mean, the female energy constitutes these collaborative, more egalitarian approach and male energy is more, wants to conquer, it wants to pillage and destroy and it creates by looking at that energy and i don't mean that men are destructive i mean the energy is one that kind of moves things forward and sometimes it's not as here's a word it's a lot more individualistic right Uh and women tend to be a lot more collaborative so we probably need a little bit more of that and i love that you're really thinking about okay so as we're saying we need some more of that and we need to really understand women's experience in the workplace right and we also need to keep in mind men and how we bring them into that conversation with a collaborative approach versus taking more of that individualistic stance that took women out of those conversations for so long. There is a momentum to kind of bring forth that male energy into how we bring more female energy into the world. Is that, am I hearing you correctly? A hundred percent. And let me add a little bit more texture. A bit ago, you and I were talking about the shadow side. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any research that shows that women are more emotionally intelligent than men. I have seen research that backs up what you just said, which is that we're connectionally potentially more intelligent than men. So the community, the frame of wanting to bring multiple parties together to make sure all of our interests are satisfied. The problem with the fact that men and women might equally be as emotionally unintelligent, (laughs) right, is that when women aren't perceived as high EQ. And that's like, it's bad because we're held to the likability bias. We're held to the standard of while we're creating all this collaboration and inclusion, we have to, you know, manage our affect at all times, right? There's, there's a less margin for error for our lack of emotional intelligence. And I, I think that's part of like the spidey hidden reason that I've never said in public. And I might call you tomorrow and be like, strike it (laughs) that I, I have sort of For myself to be true with you, I probably thought I was more emotionally intelligent than I was. And I worked really hard on that. The thing that really upsets me is when I see really powerful, amazing, productive women who aren't, who don't think about their impact, who don't have the softer sort of connection capabilities maybe consciously or unconsciously dismissed those over time. Or so that means like, you know, adhere to more masculine styles of leading, or maybe it's just not part of the personality. They're just more sort of like facts figures. The dilemma is women are penalized more when we are sort of more singular in our individuation 
and or less emotionally intelligent. That's a dilemma. It is. And, you know, that makes me think of, you know, I read a lot of uh, Ken Wilber's work and anyone that follows the podcast knows that. And he makes these point about Gilligan's work on the theory of moral development in women. And there's three levels, pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. We want more women, do we want to bring more of the women perspective at those higher levels of development, right? Because the lower levels of development, and we don't want more female narratives and perspectives that don't come at a high level of development, right? So we need to differentiate and not just say anything that has that kind of female orientation that's more collaborative. It's better than anything that comes from a the frame of reference of male moral development, right? That we have to look at. It's a nuanced topic where it's it's not only the perspective, but it's the stage of development of which it's coming from. And it's these conversations are very new. It's, yeah, I love Ken Wilber. Ken Wilber is like the thinkers, thinkers, thinker, right? So if I deduce this, because I love making really smart concepts more simple, mainly for me first, and then I talk about them. See, I do the opposite. I like to overcomplicate things and leave them in the abstract. And then I feel like I got it, but then maybe, you know, I didn't. Maybe, I, you know, it's just sitting on an armchair somewhere. No, you <laughs> I, I can tell, like, you think about this stuff deeply if you're listening to, if you're, I didn't know you were a huge fan of Ken, Ken Wilber. The, the thing that I think about is emotional contagion. That's the so what. So the fact that my energy impacts others, if I'm stressed or if I'm in a rush or if I've just had a bad day and I get into a meeting and I'm like a little bit more intense, that emotional energy is, will be contagious. It will be contagious. And by the way, you don't have to be the leader to create emotional contagion. However you show up is how you show up, but it becomes your brand and it becomes your promotability and it becomes how people talk about you behind your back, right? So we want to clean that up, (laughs) make sure that what we're offering that's contagious is net positive. That's hard. I can't, I mean, being human. The stakes are high when we're talking about these topics, right? And and again, I like to look at like the world at large, like a lot of we have so much, so many capabilities and so much opportunity. And the world is in many different aspects, way better than it's always been. But we also hold power that we never have. Like ever since we developed a nuclear capabilities, we are a the touch of a button of destroying the planet in a fraction of a second at any point in time. So the stakes are higher. Yet, I think for most people, like we're living much better lives than a lot of the people that came before us. So, you know, there's been so much progress. And I think a lot of what I hear you say is like, how do we put that in perspective? And how do we hold hands walking into the future saying, learning from what we've learned and acknowledging that, you know, it's things are not perfect, but we've made a lot of progress. And how do we keep progressing together, right? And you spend a lot of your time thinking about women's experience, but at the end of that journey, or as you go through that journey, you really are trying to think about inclusivity and equality and and how do you use that learning to bridge some of the gap between genders and how they experience life at work and how they experience themselves, right? Look, I think the source is empathy. Love that. I think the source is empathy and compassion. And it stuns me when I work with clients who are so impressive by all accounts and who have very little empathy for themselves. As you get talking with them, Carrie, disgust for other people, right? So I 
I go back to the responsibility is, I think, to imperfectly practice the art of returning to empathy for oneself and others. I think it starts there. That is so powerful because we treat others the way we treat ourselves. And if you are not dignifying yourself by treating yourself with respect, how are we expecting that we are going to provide that to others? And empathy, I think having empathy for yourself is respecting yourself, right? And it's, I I can see it consistently in in people and in myself. Why is it so hard sometimes to have empathy for, for oneself, you think, Susan? Small question. Small question, I know. <laughs> but I love that you bring that as the key because it is a simple thing that is not simple at all, but it's a simple thing to bring back and to think about and ponder and pay attention to Yeah, that actually can unlock a lot of good for ourselves and others. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. And for me, it's a cognitive check now, which meditation helps, moving my body helps with all these things that I do, you know, eating well, sleeping well helps. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is a moment to moment. Whoa, sister, did you just think that thought? (laughs) Hold on, girl. Like, stop. Like, where is that harshness coming from? You know, like pause. I have to consciously catch myself in the act of being a jerk. Notice it. So I'm dropping back and I'm noticing. Sometimes I need to feel my feels. Other times I just need to be like, okay, let's just reframe that. And so I am reframing for myself on an average day about my harsh thinking about me and about my harsh thinking about others. And I actually would say 99% of my harsh thinking comes from wanting fill in the blank to just be even better, ranging from my body to my skin to my team's performance, all of it comes from, I just want it to even be better. I want to live out the full potential. And so from a self-esteem standpoint, I return to my worthiness, which is fixed. My confidence is not. My worthiness is. So I am okay. You are okay right here, right now in the body you're in, in the mind you have, with the intelligence you have, with where you've traveled, with what language you speak, you are fundamentally okay. There's nothing you can do. There's no place you can go. That's very interesting. A very healthy self-worth is fixed because it's not dependent on whether you're successful with your startup or whether you're successful in your marriage. You have a fixed self-worth that... Yes, that it's not dependent on external happenings. But that sounds very healthy, and it sounds like the omega point, like the ideal point to get to. But is that something that you see often when working with clients? Or do you see that a lot of the things that happen in people's lives actually affect their work? Oh, I think it's the point. I think it's, and, and here's the good news. Guess what? It's a belief. That's all it is. So we just have to return to it. There's no fixed state of enoughness. I believe this to the core. Like there's no fixed state of enoughness if you're going to participate in the world in any significant way. If you want a life of significance, you will feel like you are not good enough at some moments. You will mess up to err as human. You will flaw. You will say things that you regret. You'll do things that you regret. You'll have impact that you didn't intend. Like that is what it is to have a life of significance. So it's what we do about it and how we get back to a place of being centered and grounded and in love with like in a place of love for ourselves and gentleness and for the people around us. Like, 
you know, what comes through to me as you're saying that is, I think the goal is to have that big self-worth that is there. It will be there and it will help you move through life, but while at the same time still aiming to risk and to achieve and not letting that if you already feel great about yourself, you may be less inclined to take risks to get external validation of that greatness. So you have to be, it's one of those things you have to be very careful about. It's like you get to that fixed state, but the reality of the universal movement forward is that there's that entropy in the world that makes the world go around, right? Without entropy, everything becomes so stable, beautiful, and indeed the case, right? So you have to get into that state of chaos with your own self where you have that, you can't call it necessarily fixed self-worth. It's going to shift a little bit, but the way in which it shifts comes from a very healthy place that it's almost like it's fixed, but it's not. And that pushes you to continue to get those external validations. You can't get away from the fact that you need some of that external validation, but it's the frame. If you rely on it, to feel good about yourself, that's where things get a little tricky. And, you know, as coaches, understanding these dynamics and having empathy for ourselves, sometimes you're going to walk in, you had a terrible coaching session with the client, but, you know, three sessions down the line, maybe, you know, you change that person's lives, or maybe you just have a really good engagement. They improve a little bit and everyone's happy. It's just the nature of the work as, as a coach is just so powerful. For me, it's about having these kind of conversation, reading, thinking, meditating, and finding that optimum point of equilibrium so that then you can sit there with someone and leverage that empathy you have for yourself to try to understand how you leverage that through questions and connection with someone else to achieve some some goals. Yeah. 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 But the other practices in Arrive and Thrive, like courage and resilience and authenticity come after best self, because I think of best self as the destination of return that is your worthiness. So your worthiness, of course, it it is fluid, but you return to a place of feeling good enough. From there, you risk. And the difference, you said this earlier, the difference, in my opinion, about striving is, one, when we strive from a place of fundamentally feeling worthy, we are giving of our gifts to the world and we are answering the calling that comes to us from a place of understanding our strengths. Different than hustling to be okay If I can help people stop hustling to be okay and to stand squarely in what makes them fabulous and then return when they mess up or whatever to a place of knowing they're trying and they're doing their best and have the humility and grace to say they are sorry and ask for help when they need it. Great. It's been a good day, you know? (laughs) Yeah, what a privilege to be able to work with people with these dynamics, right? And it's fascinating. It's fascinating work. And I love how deep we got and and really admire your how prolific you are and all the, the work that you're doing. And I really align with kind of the way you come at the work that you do because I think it's it's challenging to look at things from the perspective of helping women and then at the end of the day, come back and say, okay, how do I help humans? And you kept saying like people and persons and humans. And like, I really appreciate like that vocal, that that focus that you have. And 
it's just really been an enjoyable conversation. Susan, I, we're really at the top of the hour here with this uh, episode of Coaches on Zoom Drinking Coffee. But anything else you'd like to add? We went deep. We explored a lot of different things. Anything you'd like to add to kind of bring it all together? Oh, gosh. A summary of summaries. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, Alex, thank you for having me. I, I have loved this conversation. I'll have to listen to it to then assess if it was too rambling. Then I'll criticize it, right? So like, I will return to my best self when I listen to this. I hope it was of value. I think we're all on a journey of discovery. And I guess what I would leave you with is just to remind all of us who are in the work of helping others be more effective in whatever that means. The framing that feels most relevant for this moment, the zeitgeist of the moment, is learning. If we can all keep our own learning alive and see us on a journey of learning about ourselves, about how to be effective, it takes some of the edge off of all this, all the hard stuff. We're learning, we're learning, we're learning, we're growing. That's all. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And if there was any rambling, I think uh, it went both ways. We both rambled away. Hopefully our rambling will create value for others. But to me, I think you made a lot of sense. And I really enjoyed the free-flowing thoughts and ideas. It was a really fun exchange. So thank you so much. And we look forward to having you when we go to round two on the podcast, bringing people back and also having you in our WBEX Summit. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me again.